I just finished a couple of books on rowing, The Red Rose Crew, A True Story of Women, Winning, and the Water. And the next one, Kelly, A Father, A Son, and American Quest. And as I read those books, I'm thinking, these have everything to do with business. So I looked up the author, Dan Boyne, who happens to be our guest on this installment of CFO Bookshelf. Brother Bruce, don't call me Tony Horton, whom you look like right now. <laughs> you got you got the physique, you got the look, you got the you got the 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 beard, goatee. So again, you're sporting that Tony Horton look. Hey, what what sports did you play as a kid, Bruce? Um, very very young, uh, at very young age, played basketball. Um, also played soccer, and Were growing up in Maryland. Were you I, good? Were you good? Um, um, you know, I was average, um, didn't necessarily have a lot of, of, of natural athletic, um, skill and, uh, you know, particularly size and those sort of things. So, um, good eye-hand coordination and, you know, pretty, you know, pretty quick on my feet mentally. So it did okay, uh, there, but I, I would say, um, I've got no, I've got no glory days to relive. What about now? What's your sport now? Well, you know, lacrosse is uh, is remains a uh, remains a passion of mine. Uh, there, still get to play in a men's league with um, you know college age on up, and um, you know almost see that as kind of my social network is as that well. In, is that intense? Um, is lacrosse intense? Is that an intense sport? Lacrosse. Yeah, I mean, lacrosse is intense. I would say it's intense in a relaxed way. Um, there, it's it's one of those games where you can get yourself overhyped um, there. So it's, it's, it's a game where flow is really important because it does, it does combine the, you know, the athletic attributes of, of basketball, football, soccer, um, and hockey um, in, in kind of one, in one game. So it does, um, you know, there's the, there's an, there's an intensity and a focus that's necessary, but it's gotta be a, it's gotta be in a flow state. What about rowing growing up in Maryland? Do you ever row? I have never rowed um, for sport. It is intense. So if you like boys in the boat and don't ask me why it's taken me all these years, I came across Dan Boyne's book called the red rose crew. And it's somewhat of a similar story. You have eight women, so it tracks the the origin story of the eight women who won a world championship then make their way to the Olympics. This is a circa 1975, before, during, and after 75. And this is a time period, Bruce, where you had a lot of uh, uh, gender prejudice going on, and I did not recognize, realize it was that bad. I mean, this was a male dominated sport. So I read the Red Rose Crew. I reached out to Dan Boyne, who is a who is a teaching instructor for rowing at Harvard University, and very gracious. He said, "Yes, I'd be happy to talk." But he also said, "Mark, read read the Kelly book." And so he's written a book, which will be in the show notes, a book on Jack Kelly. And Jack Kelly is also a famous rower, um, Irish descent family grew up in Philadelphia, 
big, big, huge man. And, and he was a, I hope I don't get this term wrong, a scholar, because there's, there's one person and then two persons sculling. And that was his, uh, that was his event. And then he had a son, Jack Jr., who went on to prominence. And then Jack is also the father of Grace Kelly, Princess of Monaco. So that's why we're talking sports. We're talking a little bit uh, rowing. So I really enjoyed those two books by Dan Boyne. He'll be our guest uh, here in a few minutes. Why would be be interviewing a rower or somebody that's writing on rowing? Why are we doing that for a CFO podcast? Great question. Well, to me, it's a microcosm of of what business owners and CEOs do. And by the way, I think Dan had that question. I actually asked the question for him. I said, Dan, do you do you want to know why I want to interview you for this uh, business podcast? And he said, Yeah, I was kind of wondering that. But but think about it. You know, you 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 don't just get in a boat. <laughs> In, in this case, you've got eight rowers and a coxswain. I hope I said that term correctly. But you've got eight and then, and then basically the navigator. And isn't that what business is all about? The CEO says, we're going in that direction, and we're going to go at this speed, and I better have the right people in the right seats. And by the way, whoever's in the second seat is not going to be in the third seat or the fourth. I mean, every position, there is a very specific gift and talent and skill they have to have. And so you are talking, and oh, by the way, you got the coach. You got the coach. So every person has a purpose, a mission, an objective, a goal. And you just said it a few minutes ago, eat, sleep, drink. I mean, you need commitment. You need dedication. Uh, you need definitely engagement. And so I just think rowing and business, they, they, they are a perfect fit. I mean, the, the metaphor is strong. Does that make sense, Bruce? Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I knew there'd be a plan. Uh, why don't we go ahead and get into the interview with Dan? Dan, being from the Midwest, a lot of young kids, especially in rural Missouri, we grew up playing football, baseball, basketball, you know, some kids swim in the summer, hunting, fishing, but you're a rower. How, how did you get involved in the sport of rowing? Well, you know, like yourself, I had been involved with the usual assortment of sports, uh, did the Little League. Um, and in those days, I don't know if it was the same for you, but there were a lot of neighborhood pickup games. Now that's not true. Now it's like all organized. It's kind of sad because we come home from school and regardless of whether you're on a team or not, um, you'd go out and play baseball, football, basketball, following the season that was, you know, that was going on. And that was nice. You know, everybody could compete. That was a lot of fun. So I'd done all those sports. Probably the reason I didn't stay with them is up until about junior year in high school, I was, I had a very late growth pattern. So I was very short. My dad was the same way. Even though he played football, he was called Mighty Mike because he was tiny. <laughs> Even though he got football scholarships, he was really small until, again, we have this like eight-inch growth spurt in one year. So um, when that happened my senior year, I was six foot, suddenly six foot tall from 5'2 in one year, and things changed. At that point, high school was nearly over. 
my sister had gone off to college and started rowing. So women's rowing had just started. We're talking the late 70s now. And she said, why don't you come try this this summer? There's a club 30-minute drive from our house, and it's kind of fun. It's totally different. She was completely enthralled with it. So we wake up at 5 a.m., which for teenagers is no mean feat. Right. And drive out to this little lake in Old Lyme, Connecticut, known as Blood Street Skulls, and learn how to row in singles, which later on we'll probably talk about Jack Kelly. That's how he started in the single skull. And I was going to Trinity College, a small liberal arts school in Hartford, Connecticut, and they had a lightweight men's crew team. So this set me up for trying out for that team, which I otherwise, honestly, may not have made because I was still, even though I had grown in height, which is good for rowing, I was still pretty scrawny. It was like a cross-country runner, which was one of my main sports I'd done. And uh, just got on the team by the skin of my teeth. And I write about that experience in my most recent book called Seven Sea, which is kind of a revenge story, as is the Kelly book, and getting even with one's rival, who was a football player who had kind of tortured me through high school for being a non-athlete. So that's how I got into rowing. And it turned out to be uh, the perfect sport for me because of my aerobic capacity, my height, and for lightweights, you have to be under 160 pounds, which I was, and uh, I continued with it. As I was doing some digging on you, Dan, I couldn't tell. Did you compete? I mean, did you do any type of international competitions, national competitions, or did it just migrate into coaching as you are now and instructing? Well, we won the gold medal at the small college nationals uh, on that Trinity team. So that's included in that book. And that was like a phenomenal undefeated year. Hard to beat that. Came back, had, and I had a phenomenal coach who I describe as being very unusual. We can talk about coaching in a bit if you want, but he was like a gentle giant. Instead of the, you know, Bill Belichick or some of these coaches that are either grumpy or yell and scream to get results. This guy was all positive. He was just, he led by example. He was a phenomenal athlete. He'd won a medal at the Henley Regatta in England. He never yelled. He was always like, that was good. I won. I'm really excited to see if you can even do better. And we would have done anything for that guy. Uh, the next year I came back and had one of those grumpy, nothing's ever good enough. Didn't work for me. So now you are coaching. Now you don't coach a college team, but you are, how, how would you describe yourself as a, as a individual coach or, or do you do you help with teams? Well, I, I got dragged back into rowing um, inadvertently uh, in the mid eighties uh, by moving to Boston. I lived with the diving coach at Tufts University and the crew coach for the women's team had quit suddenly, mid-year, which is not really a good thing to do to your team. Uh, they desperately needed somebody. In those days, crew coaches were hard to find. I'd never done it or aspired to do it, but I took it on, and I spent the next two years rebuilding that team. It was super fun. And um, so I did coach collegiate crew in the early days, um, which is part of the 
reason or the impetus I would later go on to write the Red Rose Crew about women's rowing because I had coached a women's crew. I even saw in the 80s the discriminatory behavior of uh, what women's team got versus resources versus men, even way after the um, Title IX era. But then I, um, I got this job that I still have now many years later at Harvard where I essentially helped anybody at the university out. So if you came in, you were doing an exec ed program at the Harvard Business School, you could waltz in and say, hey, I want to learn how to do this, and I would teach you. Um, Kennedy School, same thing. A lot of graduate school rowing, undergrads can skull. We have intramurals. So I probably handle more individuals than any varsity coach. Are they coming to you because enjoyment, a way to work out, a way to get back in shape, or they just they want to learn the art and the craft, the science of, of rowing or sculling? People come to sports for different reasons, and some sports lend themselves toward uh, broad-based enthusiasm or goal-setting, if you will, for someone that wants to just get fitness, someone that wants to compete, um, be on a team, row individually, get out in nature, which rowing allows. So all sorts of reasons people will float in. Uh, I have trained many, many times people competitively. Um, I'm here in Cape Cod now um, where I've seen a friend of mine I taught how to row 20 years ago. She didn't opt to row when she was at Harvard for the varsity team at all. She wanted to learn individual sculling. She became a national champ without the varsity experience whatsoever. So particularly if people want to pursue the individual end of the sport, that's not by and large something you do in intercollegiate athletics. And also recently, for example, I never thought I'd do this 20 years ago. I've had people come to me, which I told you much later in life. And I've got two guys, two doctors in their mid seventies, never wrote a stroke. They want to compete. One has been competing in international regattas. Uh, it's the sort of sport that you can pick up later in life. Another woman came to me at age 58, and a year later she won a big race called Ahead of the Charles Regatta. And that, as you might imagine, angered a lot of other women that had been training their whole lives for this race. She had a secret weapon. Well, if you're fit and you're coordinated, I can show you how to row in Six months. And I was going to say, and you have a really great coach like yourself. Hey, before I let before I let you uh, respond back to that, I want to thank you for connecting in LinkedIn because you're probably thinking, okay, CFO bookshelf business, what does this have to do with rowing? But and I know you may tease me a little bit about this because I may again, I'm not a, a professor, I don't know your sport real well. But if you think about it in business, a CEO, a leader has to make a decision. We're going that way. We're going to go this way. They got to pick the velocity, the speed. And then you have this thing called people. (laughs) You got to make sure they're all rowing in the right direction, which can just be chaotic and almost hilarious at times. So that's why when I start looking at books about rowing and then just reading these two of your books that we're going to talk about, that's why I want to talk about rowing and then talk specifically to, to you. So now, does that kind of make sense why I'm so 
used the word enthralled a few minutes ago. That's why I'm enthralled in wanting to chat with you because there is a very direct connection between what you do and the business world that, that I live in. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. In fact, it's become very popular for uh, companies to come in and do team building exercise with rowing, which is seen as this classic team building exercise, because if you're not on board, so to speak, if you're not in sync, uh, the whole thing falls apart very in a very obvious way. Um, it, you'll just get an oar jammed in your back. So unlike other sports where you might be able to get away with at least temporarily slacking off, doing something a little different, showboating, uh, so to speak. You really can't do that in rowing. There's no no one star. Um, the stroke that leads the boat, sure, might be a little bit of a centerpiece, but even then, they're burdened with the responsibility of having to set a pace for everybody else. So in a way, they're being subservient to those behind them and making sure that the people behind them can row at the same pace. So we do a lot of this. Uh, a lot of CEOs will come into the Harvard Business School and say, can you take us out? They're very surprised how hard it is because you see rowing and it's like, how hard can this be? You're doing the same motion again and again. We don't have to learn a layup, um, a jump shot, <laughs> a long shot, all these other things, all these different plays. There's only one play, just row. <laughs> but you have balance, you have timing. And so it's deceptively difficult. I was going to say, even where you put the hands, right? Yeah. So it, it can be fun. There was a, uh, a Jap, uh, not a Japanese, a Chinese businessman who I worked with a few years ago, who's multimillionaire. And he has gotten so enthralled with rowing that he um, was going around China trying to start these company rowing teams, which would then compete against one another because he saw the value in the team building. I first read, actually, I listened to the book, The Red Rose Crew, and I mentioned that in LinkedIn. You said, Mark, don't forget to read the book about Jack Kelly. And you were not trying to be salesy. I think I think you really thought, I think Mark will like this. So I just finished that book. I think it was on Friday night. I finished it, and it was outstanding. So let's talk a little bit about Jack Kelly. I'd never heard of him. Now, we've all heard of Grace Kelly. Tell us about Jack Kelly. So uh, the book that I wrote was mostly about Jack Kelly Sr., just for your listeners. Yes. Um, And then the second half of the book, which you know, is about his son, Jack Jr. If I can make a little parallel to the Kennedy family because of the Irish background, similar, except they were in Philadelphia, um, whereas the Kennedys were Boston and even down here on Cape Cod, my dad actually grew up next to them. So Kelly Sr. grew up turn of the century, turn of the 19th century in Philadelphia, which in a poor neighborhood, big Irish community, one of, I think, eight kids. And he always used to see the scholars out on the Schuylkill River. And even though he was doing all sorts of sports, he was a multi-talented athlete. He could play any sport and excel, football, basketball. He boxed so well that he almost did boxing. He ended up fighting Gene Tunney in the war. But sculling really, for some reason, grabbed his attention. Who knows why? But people that like to row are usually water people, and they're attracted to the water for some reason. And in those days, 
um, there were professional athletes that used to win, believe it or not, prize money up to $5,000, which would be like $500,000. Right. But he came into it just at the change of the guard, so to speak, where something called the amateur rules came into play and they forbid the professionals from competing in the Olympics and so forth. But he was a, an amateur. He'd won everything by the time he was in his 20s, but he really wanted this prize, international prize called the Henley Regatta Diamond Skulls. He had his boat ticket, story goes, and the steamship. And then a couple of days before, I got the telegram saying, nope, we're not going to permit you because you're not really an amateur in the eyes of the British. You are a laborer. You're a bricklayer, which he was. So the story stems from this uh, rebuff. Turns out he beat the British champion in the Olympics two months after Henley, but it's not enough. He's got to raise his son <laughs> to go back. 27 years later and get this one prize that he was denied. Meanwhile, he goes from being a bricklayer to a multimillionaire or company owner, politician in the democratic party and uh, a huge figure around town. It wasn't just a politician. I could tell he cared. He, I mean, he cleaned up Philadelphia, right? Yeah, he was, uh, he was a mover and a shaker and politics in those days uh, were rough and ready. People took things into their own hands. What as a writer, what fascinated you the most? So I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it probably took you easily over a year to compile information, talk to people. What fascinated you the most about Jack senior? And then we'll get to Jack junior in just a minute. Uh, Well, he was just one of these larger than life figures where you started, I started to hear about all the things he had done. And of course, as a writer, you want to try and sift the mythology, especially among the Irish culture, being at least partly Irish myself, the embellishment um, and tall telling, (laughs) tall tale telling versus the actual facts. So I was able to find some old journals and that's where the writing process is really um, one where you got to dig into the facts and investigate and interview people. Luckily, had a few uh, older folks who were still alive and could tell me even stories that weren't written about, some outrageous stories. So what impressed me the most was that he was, first of all, an all-around athlete who could have done any sport he wanted, practically, um, and just very dynamic. Like, he made things happen. You could see why he was successful in business and first he was successful in sports. So you get a lot of these figures that use sports also to elevate themselves in the world from a class perspective, from a financial perspective, politically. And that's exactly what he did. He came from a kind of a poor family and he ended up with a very successful family and children who did quite well. Grace Kelly, everybody knew, uh, you know, married into royalty in Monaco, his son became a famous rower as well. Who was a better rower, Jack Jr. or Jack Sr.? It's hard to compare because of the competition, which had definitely good point come up. Um, however, probably, probably Sr. Um, had more drive. And uh, I know you asked me before about how much should you push your kids. 
this whole story delves into that a little bit where from a very young age, I think eight, Kelly Jr. or Kel, as he was called, mm -hmm. was put into a boat and said, guess what you're going to do? <laughs> you're going to fulfill my unfulfilled destiny, kid. And so it was, I'm sure, a great experience on the one hand, but also quite a burden. And rowing is not a small task. It's grueling, grueling, day in, day out. There's no reprieve. Do you think that it was hard for him growing up in his father's shadow, even though he did experience success? He redeemed himself, um, I don't know if you remember the chapter, but probably one of his great accomplishments that he he thought he did for himself was coaching the uh, coaching the Philadelphia Vesper 8 in, uh, I think it was 68, that um, was kind of like a boys in the boat scenario that actually someone asked me to write about that one because they rode in, in the dark in Tokyo. Maybe it was, Ooh. yeah. And, uh, and they were a bunch of ragtag, well, they were a mixed group of Ivy League boys and then really rough Philadelphia types that Kelly somehow managed. They, you know, a lot of them hated each other's guts. Like, here's two guys from Yale. Here's, here's a guy who's like a policeman's kid who wants to just rip everybody's head off. So he, one of his accomplishments was to manage and coach that boat to a gold medal. Before we get into the Red Rose crew, another big takeaway in the book, and you make this so vivid. By the way, you're a good writer. You have a way of just making it feel like you are there. And so when you're describing, and I, I think what's most, what I remember the most is Kel, where he's, after he's won an event, his dad taught him, you know, don't lean back when you're tired, you know, grab onto the, the oar and lean forward. And you get the idea that these people are about to pass out. <laughs> and, and, and it is an intense sport. And I would think the mental part of the game just, just, I've got to do this. The grit, the, the, the determination, that, again, is a big takeaway. And, of course, that's more at the highly competitive level. Um, how, did, how did you even how, – how could you put those actions into words? Again, very fascinating. Well, it helps to have done the sport, as I talked about. And um, I had friends in – in crews that actually did pass out, blacked out. It wasn't that unusual phenomenon because if you think about it, uh, you're being driven to levels of performance beyond your ability, especially in a crew. In a single, you could probably slack off, but of course, if your dad is watching, it's not going to go over well, like for Cal. Uh, but in a crew, certainly, um, there are many, many stories of people in the middle of the boat lacking out because they're being pushed again, beyond their, um, the levels of their ability. Uh, and it's one of the most grueling or demanding cardiovascular sports there is outside of like cross country skiing. We, we obviously, we live in a special country, but we have, we live in a country with a very checkered past. There are things we've done good there are things we've done very poorly, and we can even say we're ashamed of. I can now put on my list, as a result of reading The Red Rose Crew, I'm glad I was not a woman living before 1975. <laughs> and um, tell me about The Red Rose Crew. What led you to writing about these special women who 
had a goal and said, we're going to do this. T- tell us a little bit about the book and, and why you wrote it. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I was kind of, um, as with the Kelly book, in a way, I was kind of dragged into writing the story because I had been asked to write an article for this regatta, the head of the Charles, about the seventh seat of that crew, a woman named Gail Pearson, mm. who was also, curiously enough, first female economics teacher at Harvard and, um, believe it or not, a sharpshooter uh, from Louisiana. Her dad brought her up to, to um, shoot. And there's a great story in the book about her winning a prize at a county fair. And the, the guy <laughs> didn't want to give her the prize. <laughs> he couldn't believe this woman was like Annie Oakley. Um, and that this, this woman, Gail, said, well, she was very humble, by the way. All the women were telling their stories. She said, you really ought to write about this moment and this crew. And so I just had my tape recorder and I went around to each person and with each story, I became more and more kind of excited. And also I felt like a story had been handed to me or I've been asked to pursue that should be told. And I wanted to make sure that I told it right, particularly as a guy telling a women's story, but I had some pre-qualifications gender side because I coached the women's crew. I'd grown up with a sister who was a tomboy who was repeatedly discriminated against. I knew a little bit, at least closely secondhand, if not firsthand, of the treatment that women athletes got. Having said all that, what's interesting to note, in which I was reminded of in my research, was prior to War II, female athletes were in a heyday, and they were not as discriminated against across the board as post-World War II, when women were, guys came back from the war and didn't want that the women to be competing with them on their playing field, so to speak. So we kind of went backwards, um, which was just fascinating to me to find these female figures in the 30s who were even winning rowing races and being celebrated in the local papers. And then suddenly it was like the boom was lowered. Nope. Uh, go back to the kitchen. <laughs> and so it took a whole other round um, of social upheaval to bring them back to where they already were. By the way, kudos, kudos to you because ESPN, am I correct? They're going to be doing a, uh, is it a, a full movie or is it more of a documentary? But ESPN is involved in this project, right? Yeah, they're going to do a feature film if things go well. Um, and it's very exciting. So we'll see, uh, what we get out of that. Having worked on a rowing film before the social network, it's hard to make authentic rowing film because it requires a lot of, uh, training of the, the actors, first of all, the actresses to, to look authentic and then anything on the water, any filming on the water, the, um, the level possible, (laughs) Uh, problems comes up uh, quite a bit. So we'll see. I'm I'm quietly excited. We'll see what happens. The the women and the the Red Rose crew women, even when they win, even they win at like a a world championship, they come back home and they still have terrible facilities. What's going on? I mean, what how when did when can you look back, Dan, and say? 
things started changing for the women in the sport, not just in rowing, but but even in other competitive competitive sports? Um, well, I don't pretend to be you know an overall expert in women's sports. It was really a particular story, but I can say in rowing, um, as well as other sports, of course, the first step is legislation. Mm-hmm. You know, and the Title IX in 1972 actually had gone or been passed earlier, but um, it was really consolidated in 72. And that's what brought the women in and the rowing teams to start. Uh, and so you, you gain some interest or acceptance um, or at least attract the, the interest of women through that legislation. Then you need money. You know, that's what they didn't have. They might have like, okay, you can do this, but guess what? You go over there to that playing field, which is terrible, or have this boat that's terrible. But then it becomes a matter of um, getting the capital, you know, just like in business. Like, hey, here's a great idea. Now, how are you going to get to fund it? So then you get into the politics of getting national funding or individual investment. And, you know, it takes a while. So some of the biggest supporters became the, the dads and the family of women who got into sports. So I used to see this at Harvard where fathers would come in who may, might not have been interested in rowing or women's sports at all, but they had a daughter who wanted to do this. And they're like, well, I'm going to damn well make sure <laughs> they've got the resources and drop the money to buy some boats. And then you start to gain the uh, financial clout, so to speak. And then lastly, the social acceptance um, is the slowest piece to come on board. But after those two things are in place, the legal aspect, the financial aspect, then you get a kind of a grassroots, okay, well, we've seen this. We've seen, oh, what was that? What, women are on the water? Isn't that crazy? Uh, maybe we'll heckle them. Oh, no, maybe, oh, wait, there's, there's more. Now there are more women than men rowing? Oh. Um, and so just like the first woman to run the Boston Marathon was shoved off the course, it's hard to believe now, but you need a couple of people like the, the friend, the male friend of the woman rowing to help out, to support. And then now look at what women's sports have achieved. I don't think they're still on par with men, but they've gained social acceptance to a much degree greater degree. And I think they'll continue to win hearts and minds. So it's a, it's a gradual process, but that crew, one of the reasons I wrote about that boat, it was a pivotal year for all those factors to come into play. Legal, financial, they needed money, and then they needed some social acceptance. They did get an article in, I think it was either Time or Sports Illustrated that year, which a small article, but it was something. We touched on this earlier, and just briefly, Dan, in the Red Rose crew, the first athlete mentioned, and there's it may went into more than one chapter, but you could tell there was tension between the daughter and the father. And obviously with Jack Sr. and Jack Jr., uh, tension. As a coach yourself, as a coach yourself, and having been a baseball dad for many years, what advice, if you do, 
What advice do you give to parents who are maybe not shoving or, well, maybe that is the word, who are kind of moving their children into rowing? Is there some advice that you have uh, for them? Well, it is, you know, I saw that question. It's always hard because all of us, whether we are aware of it or not, want to live through our kids a bit. Um, especially if we have a sport or we have a passion and uh, we want to translate or transfer that passion to the kids and have them enjoy the same uh, sport. But that's different than, than projecting your success or your need for success into your kids. And we've all seen those parents at the games who are even getting into fights. You know, seems, hockey seems to be a big one for that but even soccer and just yelling and screaming at the refs and just getting a little too involved. Uh, I think it's a tricky or a slippery slope. However, you did point out that in both the Red Rose crew and Kelly book, had there not been a parent to be somewhat goading or somewhat of a model because Carrie Graves, the stroke of the Red Rose crew, her dad had rode, so she got into it. So kids do want to, they have a natural tendency to want to please the parents and emulate them. I think you can definitely foster that if that's the direction they're going in. And then at some point you got to kind of step away, (laughs) step away from the vehicle, you know, and and let them enjoy it themselves or you're robbing them of um, their enjoyment of the sport. And I remember my daughter didn't really want to do sports and I was kind of, Kind of like, oh my God, this, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> in a very bad way, her mother was away, who was also an athlete one weekend. I said, you know, why don't we just go to the YMCA, take some swim lessons? And, you know, I'd already talked to the coach of the swimming team there. I had a plan and a plot, and I'm a little more devious about it, and maybe subtle is the wrong word. And so we get there. Oh, well, look at this, this swim team going on here. What's that all about? Maybe you'd like to stay and try that for half an hour because you really did well in the swimming lesson. You're sneaky. Oh, I don't know, Dad. Well, um, tell you what, if you did just a little bit of it, we might, since Mommy's not home, give you, let you go to McDonald's, have a happy meal, which is taboo. Oh, really? Okay. So <laughs> that's the swim lesson and actually beats a couple kids and – comes out, okay, I'm not going to do that. That was just too much work. And Okay, that's fine. Here's your, let's go to McDonald's. Mother calls that night. What'd you do today? Oh, I joined the swim team. It's going to be really good. <laughs> you weren't, so, in, tr- you weren't I, in trouble, were you? Uh, no, but after, I didn't uh, interfere too much. Great story. Hey, two more questions because we need to let you go. Uh, I asked this question to some other writers, and they love the question. And I, I've already, I've already shared it with you. So, let's say you're back at Harvard, and you've been asked to do a TEDx talk, and it could be one of those TEDx talks where it's nine minutes or the full eighteen or thereabout minutes. What's your topic, Dan? I'm curious. I really am. I'm curious to know what your TEDx talk would be given that opportunity. Well, I don't know if you know this about me. Um, in addition to the other things I've done, I got into doing and, and practicing yoga as well. So uh, I think my talk would be 
transcending the competition in competitive sports. And by that, I mean, I once had a yoga teacher who I really like who said, uh, yoga is like self-referential martial arts. And I was like, what? And I had done martial arts too for many years, uh, just as Jack Kelly had done boxing. And fighting is one of the primary <clears throat> uh, sport encounters, direct sport encounters with an adversary. I mean, basically every sporting competition is a fight. Whether you're laying hands on somebody in a very tangible way or in rowing where you're not laying hands on them at all, it's still a fight. And so what this guy was saying was, yes, it's everything's a, a martial art or, or a combat, but ultimately it's you against yourself. And so my talk would be about the, the way that great athletes, and Kelly was no exception, they may start with this competitive fire, like I'm going to get that other guy, I'm going to beat that boat, I'm going to, we're going to beat the Germans and the war, whatever it is. And then at some point they realize uh, it's more than that. It's about them going beyond themselves. Just so happens you need some sort of shadow or some figure to, to work against as a sounding board in order to really see yourself and work beyond your own issues that are preventing you from your best performance. I, I heard you on another interview talking about yoga and I, th and then you've got a book uh, uh, talking about yoga, right? So I want to refer to you as the Tony Horton of, of rowing because Tony Horton, Mr. P90X, he calls yoga the fountain of youth. Hey, la last question. Again, this is, you're on a business podcast, CFO bookshelf. Uh, I'm curious, what books do you like to read? So you're an author. Uh, I know writers typically read. What What are some of your favorite uh, books? What, what What are some of the ones that, that rank up there? Or what are some of the books that you like gifting to others? I've kind of become a sucker for mystery detective stories, which I know is somewhat cliche for, for guys. Um, I never did before, but there's a guy named Philip Kerr who, speaking of, you know, us going against the Nazis. He's he's one of the best writers, and his protagonist um, is kind of an unusual. He works in the Berlin Police Department, but he's really um, at odds with them. <clears throat> he, I've read most of his books. I think he passed away a few years ago, actually. Uh, Bernie Gunter is his protagonist. I recommend him wholeheartedly if you like that genre, uh, and. Then, of course, I was a lit major, so I love uh, people like Thomas Hardy or anybody that's got lyrical writing to them, and he's one of the most brilliant uh, British writers I think there ever was. Um, so those would be two right off the bat. I also just I love humor, um, <laughs> and you'll see if you, you read my other book about myself, uh, people that can laugh at themselves and have sense of humor there's a great uh, autobiography called My Family and Other Animals. The humor is right in the title <clears throat> by Gerald Durrell, Lawrence Durrell's brother, who gets his boyhood summer on the island of Corfu and all the characters he meets and his family, who's just this you know, madcap British family who decides to up and pack up from uh, England and move to Corfu. Uh, so that's one of my all-time favorites. 
Dan, thank you again for being on the show. This is an honor. And when you said yes, I mean, there were a couple of fist pumps. And and so I know it may sound peculiar. It's like, why does he want to talk to me? But your books are outstanding. Again, we'll mention in the show notes, we'll mention all your books. But I highly recommend the Red Rose Crew. I recommend the Kelly book. In fact, in my weekly newsletter, I mentioned both uh, both books. But Again, thank you very much, and I appreciate all you are doing for all the athletes who come to you and say, teach me. Thank you. It's great to be on your show. Bruce, does this mean you're going to read a couple of books or at least one book on rowing now? Uh, yeah, there's you know, definitely not a topic that I had expected to get into, but I tell you, when uh, um, after hearing that, there's I may need to put a couple of those in the may need to put a couple of those in the rotation. I would definitely put in the Jack Kelly book, the Kelly book. He reminds me a little bit, and I did not bring this up to, to Dan. And by the way, I, I want to high-five Dan here in just a, a minute or two, but it reminds me a little bit of, of uh, the Terminator, Schwarzenegger, who wrote the book Total Recall. And that is a sneaky good autobiography uh, by, by Arnold. So he a very driven individual, a very goal-driven. Well, Kelly was very goal-driven, huge man, uh, great, great athlete. And then he gets into politics, not for necessarily selfish reasons, but to clean up his, 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 his city, Philadelphia. And then he was a great businessman. I mean, came, came one of the strongest, biggest uh, bricklaying contractors uh, on the East Coast. So some similarities there. But real quickly, I just want to say thanks again to uh, Dan Boyne, just what an incredible individual. And man, such a great writer, because when you're reading the parts where they are in competition, I felt like as a reader, I'm right there. I'm I'm not sweating, but I'm tensing up. It's like, man, he, he, he is a very gifted uh, writer. And Dan, just again, thank you. Well, Mark, we ready to take it home? Please, All right, well. you, you are <laughs> awesome at this, so please do it, sir. And by the way, have a great, great rest of the week, Bruce. Hey, Mark, you have a great rest of the week as well. Enjoyed our chat today. Everybody out there, stay safe. Please practice love and empathy. And we'll look forward to talking to you all again next week. 